All right, how you guys doing okay? All right, good. My name is Josh Knight, one of the pastors here on staff, and we're going to dive into the Word together this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Uh, Ephesians 6 is actually where we're going to be this morning, just one little short little passage uh, today. We've been in this uh, short topical series now for four weeks. We only have one week left after today, only one week left uh, after today, and we've been diving into this idea called After 10 Years. What do we long for? What do we desire our lives to look like after 10 years? What are the categories um, that we would say kind of rise to the top of our hopes um, after 10 years? And the thing that we've been uh, hammering again and again and again and again is that after 10 years, uh, those things that are most valuable, those things that are most important, maybe for you it's your marriage, maybe for you it's a relationship with Jesus, maybe for you it's a freedom from addiction, maybe for you it's um, having a good relationship with your kids or your grandkids, maybe for you um, it's... um, a restored relationship with somebody in your life that's been broken over time and you want to seek to restore that over the course of the 10 years. Uh, None of those things are going to happen by accident. None of those things are going to happen simply by chance. You're not going to stumble into any of those things. You will have worked hard every single day. You will have invested wisely in the present moment uh, every single day in order to, if God wills, if God wills and you live long enough to see it and he blesses you in such a way um, that, you, that those hopes and dreams become a reality. It'll be because you've invested wisely in the present moment each and every single day, moment by moment, in order to ever get to those things, in order to ever even hope of getting to those things. And so we've been talking about a few of those things, and this morning we're going to talk about um, parenting, investing in kids. And so maybe you have kids, maybe you have grandkids, maybe you don't have kids yet, but you will have some in the future, or maybe uh, for you, there's, there's a kid in your life who, who's not actually your kid, um, but maybe, maybe it's a cousin or uh, a neighbor's kid that you've just um, taken, taken kind of the responsibility of training and developing and caring for and kind of being a role model for, right? We're talking, we're talking this morning about that idea. How, how do we parent well, how do, we, how do we steward our children well? And really, back to the whole idea, how do we invest well in the present moment for the sake of a future hope for the kids in our lives, okay? How do we invest well in the present moment, the one that we can actually somewhat, in some way, semi-control, how do we invest well in the present moment in order for the sake of a future hope, a future dream that we have for our kids or our grandkids uh, or kids that we just truly, genuinely care about in our lives, right? This idea of investing, when it comes to a financial investment, one of the most kind of basic, simple truths that uh, we all know if you, if you are saving for retirement or maybe you're saving for your kid's college or maybe you're saving for an idea out in the distance of the future, what we know is that it's not something that you can put off. It's not something that you can put off, right? We all know that um, a smaller investment over a long period of time is far greater than a sh- no, the large investment over a short period of time. Right? If, we put it, if, we, if we say, you know what, I've got time. I've got time. I'm going to put away my money when I get older. Right now I'm going to spend it on all of the stuff that I want. Um, it just doesn't, it never goes well. It never goes rightly, right? But if we say early on, I'm going to begin investing now, even though it's a smaller amount, I'm going to gain a maximum return or a larger return on that investment if I begin investing early. In the same way, the same thing is true for our kids, right? The earlier that we begin truly investing in the present moment of the lives of our children or our grandchildren or kids that we're investing in, um, the, the sooner that we begin that investment, the larger or the, the more clear, more visible return on that investment we will uh, achieve, 
And the reality is, the reality is, is that there's a, the old saying, the old saying, uh, the days are long, but the years are short. Right? The days are long, but the years are short. That's true. It's true for those of you who have raised kids, right? Or maybe you're in the process of raising kids. Maybe you got some teenagers at home and they're, they're getting ready to drive. Like in a year or so, they're going to be driving. You're like, what is happening? Like, what is happening? I just remember it was like yesterday you were just taking your first steps and now you're driving my car. What is, what is going on, right? Or, or maybe you've got that uh, kind of older uh, or pre, pre-teen kid that's just like just driving you crazy. They're such a punk. And you're like, just yesterday you were so cute and so fun and I wanted to be around you and now you're crazy, Right? What happened? It's, the years are so short, they go by so fast. But the days, the days take forever, right? Yesterday, yesterday I, I flew on a plane across the country to get back here to be with you all this morning with two boys. Um, my, my boys, I got one who's four years old, Winston, and then I have a 10-month-old, Haddon. Um, and so two, two boys in a confined space, a capsule, um, 30,000 feet above the ground for hours. You want to talk about a long day, friends? That's a long day. That's a long day. And, and my boys, they're like seasoned travelers. They've been on so many flights, and they've done this thing a million times. It's still a long day, right? It's a long day. Uh, the days are long. It's like we're barely getting through. We're barely trying to survive. And as soon as they go to bed, you're just like, praise the Lord. I've made it through. But then, but then like, you wake up a few years from now, and you're like, man, has really that much time already gone by? The days are long, but the years are so short. And so what I want us to do real quick this morning before we dive into the text, before we really begin unpacking this thing, is take a look at the weeks. The weeks, right? So we, we know the days are long and the years are short, but what about the weeks? The reality is you have 936 weeks with your kid. 936, which sounds like a lot. Um, but it's really not, right? So I have up here these jars of marbles. And here in the end, we have 936 marbles, uh, little stones, actually, in, in, a, in a vase. Like we couldn't fit it in one of these, so we got a bigger one. So at birth, from birth to 18 years old, you have 936 weeks. 936 weeks. But for some of you, maybe your kids are age 10. You got about 416 weeks left. You're already over halfway there if you got a 10-year-old. You already have less than half of the weeks left. You have 416 weeks left to invest in your kid. Maybe for some of you, your kids are getting a little bit older. You got a 12-year-old. You got 312 weeks left. Maybe your kid's getting ready to drive. You're like, oh my gosh, get this kid out of my house. You only have 104 weeks left. 104 weeks left to invest, 104 weeks left for you to be the presence in their life, the source um, of true authority in their life, the source of true wisdom in their life. Because then, then at 18, when they, when they move out of your house and they're doing their own thing, maybe they're going to college, maybe they're getting a good job in their own apartment, whatever it might look like, for sure, for sure, maybe if you've invested well, maybe they come back and they engage and they, they ask you questions and they ask for wisdom and they seek courage from mom and dad. But ultimately, you are no longer the main source of wisdom and courage and authority in their lives. They're going to find that someplace else. They're going to find it in other things. They are now on their own down there. And what's really interesting, somebody pointed this out after the last gathering, is as the stones and the marbles um, decrease, the amount of influence that you have also decreases. Not only are the weeks slipping away, but right here, down here, right? So, so 
This, this jar is basically just, just keep the kid alive, okay? Just keep the kid alive. <laughs> but even here, with, with, oh, we have a little boy, Haddon. Haddon's 10 months old. Everything Haddon does, everything he does, he learns from his mom and dad. Everything. Um, h- how to eat. He watches mom and dad, right? He's beginning to make gestures that, repl- that, that replicate us, right? It's like a mirror, right? I can shake my head. I had to shake his head. I'll wave my hand. Had to wave his hand. Right? Everything he does comes from mom and dad. But as time goes on, for those of you who have a 16-year-old, you straight up know they don't do what mom and dad does anymore. Right? The, the, The amount of influence that you have drops over time. And so, what I want you to see before we dive into this is that you have a very, very, very fragile, limited, fleeting amount of time to make the greatest investment that you're going to make in your entire life. You have a small amount of time to make a great investment into your children or your grandkids. At the same time, at the same time, there's a massive amount of responsibility that comes with this investment, more than any other investment. You're going to stand before God someday, and he's going to say, hey, how did those 936 weeks go for you? How did you invest in what I gave you? Benjamin talked about this a minute ago. This isn't ours. Don't be fooled into believing that in some way, shape, or form your kids belong to you because maybe they mimic you or because maybe they look like you. They are not yours. They have always been God's. They're a gift from God to be stewarded with the utmost care and wisdom. And we will stand before him and we will give an account for 936 weeks. How did it go? What did you do? What was your plan? How did you implement that plan? Did you live moment by moment investing well in the present for the sake of a future hope? Did you have clarity around that hope? Did you have clarity around those moments of how you were going to invest? How did you invest well? Now, my, my plan is simple. I'm going, to look at the, I'm going to look at Scripture. I'm going to look at the Word. I'm going to say, what does is, what is God ultimately command me as a dad, me as a parent to do? How does he command me to engage my kids so that I can stand before him someday and say, man, I did exactly what you called me to do? This morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 6. A short little one-verse passage, Ephesians 6. Now, if you remember last week, we read from Ephesians uh, 5. And Paul sets up this idea in, the begin- in the kind of in the middle of Ephesians 5. Um, he talks about living wisely in the present age. In the present moment, look carefully how you live. Study, examine your present moment. Look at how you're living in the present so that, so that the future might work out well. So that you might live out the, in your, the, your days, that so you might maximize your investment with the days that you have, the limited days you have. And he begins to break this into different categories. And one of them is kids and parents. And he says this in Ephesians 6, chapter 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? So the first thing that we see, we're actually going to flip this verse around, but first, um, do not provoke your kids to anger. It can be a confusing thing, but I, think, I don't think it's that confusing, right? Paul is not saying, um, dads, don't tickle your kids until they get angry. 
Um, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't provoke your kids until they, right, don't, don't pick on them until they get angry. It's not, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not his point, right? So tickle, tickle away, dads, tickle away. Um, um, what he's saying is, if we do not do the latter, there will be frustration in the lives of our children, Okay? If we do not bring them up in discipline, if we do not bring them up in the instruction of the Lord, there will be frustration in their lives, right? Maybe some of you have had a boss like this, right? Where your boss um, is constantly uh, harping on you about the things that you haven't done well, but they never, they never instructed you, never showed you, never told you exactly how they wanted it done. You didn't do it right, and they're going to tell you you didn't do it right, but they never told you how you want them to do it. That's frustrating, that makes us angry, right? And I believe the same thing is true with my kids, right? With my four-year-old Winston, I know that if I punish him for something that I never actually instructed him in, that's a frustrating place for a kid to be. It's a frustrating place. If I have not created a system of discipline for his life, and he doesn't know what dad ultimately longs for him, he doesn't know what God ultimately longs for him, right? He's going to be angry and frustrated along the way. And so we must create those systems and those structures in order to um, free our kids from that, from that anger and that frustration that comes with our parents. So we're going to return this around a little bit. We're going to look at the latter first, right? He says, in the instruction of the Lord. How do we bring our kids up in the instruction of the Lord? Now, I said at the beginning, I said a few minutes ago, that, the, that your kids, they are not yours. Your grandkids are not yours. The neighbor kids are not yours. They don't belong to you. They're a gift from God. He holds that gift, but he's entrusted it to us to steward it well, to steward it well, and to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. I think if you look throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you see these two buckets, so these two big buckets, discipline and instruction in the Lord, again and again and again. Now, when he says discipline, we'll talk about discipline in a minute, he's not talking about punishment. He's not. Now, there's plenty of stuff about punishing your kids in the Bible, all right? It's all over the Bible. In fact, Solomon, Solomon was like the king of like disciplining his kids, right? Uh, uh, in Proverbs, Solomon says something like, um, hey, if you want to beat your kid with a rod, don't worry about it. He ain't going to die. I'm going to frame that, put that right in my kid's room. Um, just kidding, kidding. But it does say that. It does say, right? Um, but that's not, what, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about creating a, a, a system, an order in their lives so that they might live disciplined lives. Not so that they would be punished, but so they would live disciplined lives. Right? And then raising our kids up in, in the Lord. These kind of two big buckets. Raising our kids up in the Lord, what does that look like? Um, he, here's the first thing you must, every parent and every grandparent must understand. You cannot save your children or your grandkids. Can't do it. You are not Jesus. You cannot save your children. You cannot force your children to be saved. You cannot force your children to love Jesus. You cannot force your children to, to obey the Lord. You cannot force them um, to be obedient to God. In fact, the harder that we try, the worse this becomes. Every parent in the room, every grandparent in the room knows that um, behavioral modification does not work. Saying a million times to our kid, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, instead do this, doesn't work. It doesn't work. Any parent in the room ever told your kid something to do, to, not to do 10 times and they do it anyways? Anybody? Really? Just, just a few. How many of you are lying right now? Okay, everybody. It doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. You can't just say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It doesn't work. You can't just say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. There must be a greater motivation that comes in the hearts of our children, and in our hearts, but in the hearts of our children, in order for them to walk in the knowledge and the wisdom and the obedience of the Lord. There must be a transformation that happens inside of them. They must see the gospel more clearly in order to long to live lives of radical obedience. You, by simply telling them to be obedient will never produce obedience. There must be a longing inside of them to pursue that. In the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 4, um, the people of Israel are um, they're, they're traveling. They've packed up their camp. They're moving to a different place where God has called them to be. Um, and they're, they come to the Jordan River. And it's springtime. The Jordan River is overflowing. The banks are full uh, all the way up to the brim. It's a massive river, rushing current. And literally the entire nation of Israel is standing there on the banks being like, well, what now? There's no way across. We can't carry ourselves across. We can't even swim across. It's too fast. It's too powerful. Joshua says, man, this is what God has for us. So he calls the priests who are carrying the ark. He tells them to come forward. They're carrying the ark of the covenant. He says, all right, let's go. And the priests put their feet in the water, and the water stops. Upstream, there's a wall of water that just holds right there. And all the other water flows on by. And God dries up the ground, and they walk across on dust, on dry earth. The entire nation of Israel walks across the Jordan. And on the other side, in, in a city, Gilgal, Joshua takes 12 stones from the bottom of the river. Twelve big stones, and he brings them with them. And in Gilgal, he stacks them on top of each other. And here's what he says in Joshua chapter 4, verse 20. It says this. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children, when they ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell you, let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us as we passed over. So that all the people of earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Right? Joshua takes these 12 stones, he stacks them up. He says, here's why I'm stacking these 12 stones. Someday, your little boy, your little girl is going to be walking by here, and they're going to say, Dad, what are those 12 stones stacked up like that for? You say, those stones came out of the bottom of the Jordan River. You see, we, we worship a mighty and sovereign and powerful God who owns all things, controls all things. All things in heaven and earth are subject to him. And that God, that almighty, powerful God, God caused the, the sea, the, ri the river, to stop. And he dried the ground in an instant. And we walked across on dry ground because he's mighty and he's sovereign and because he loves his people. He loves his people enough to care for them and to make safe passage for them into the greater promise that he had for them. So we have this mighty, powerful God who loves his people. And therefore, kids, we should fear the Lord in a healthy way. We should stand in awe of a God who is totally powerful, totally pure, totally holy. 
and yet loves people who are broken and sinful, loves them and cares for them and longs for something better in their lives. Joshua didn't say, those 12 stones are there so you can tell your kids to be obedient to God. No, so that they might know who God is and therefore, therefore, live in fear of him. And a good, healthy fear, a right fear, a holy fear, right? In my house, outside of my boys' room, uh, there's a big bookshelf. And on the bookshelf, we have knickknacks and things and books. And um, on kind of the top shelf, because I don't want them to play with them just yet, there's a few things that I brought back from a moment in my life uh, that was completely transformative for me. Uh, for those of you who've been around Flourishing Grace for a while, you know my life was changed. My heart was changed by God. Um, in, between the summer of my junior and senior year of college, um, my friends invited me to go on a trip. We went to North Africa. North Africa. And on that trip, everything for me changed. It was the first time ever in my life that I heard the gospel in a way that made sense for me. It was the first time in my life that I experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And it was on that trip, in that space, that I said, man, I'm giving all of my life to the King of Kings. And not just, not just giving my life to him, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to make sure that other people around me, people here at Flourishing Grace, people around me understand how amazing he is and that they might have a flourishing relationship with him as well. I want to be a pastor, I, I want to, or, or whatever, I didn't know what that looked like then, I just knew I wanted to tell people about Jesus. And so I brought things back from that trip, and these things are really important to me. There's like a little glass bottle with some Arabic on it. It's a Coke bottle, and uh, it's filled with sand from the Sahara Desert. There's like a little, um, little magic box thing, a wooden box thing, a little wooden bowl. And, man, someday my boys are going to be like, Dad, what's that, what's that sand from? And I'll get to tell them. I'll say, man, there is a God who loves your dad. And he loved your dad before your dad was ever kind and patient. He loved your dad before your dad ever loved him. He loved your dad when your dad was a wreck and a mess. And he called me out of that mess. And, and he gave his life for me on the cross because he loves me. And he took something that was broken, something that was condemned, something that could not be restored by human hands, and he restored it. He, he breathed beauty from the ashes. And he created a dad who, who he's taught to, to love you well. And this mighty, powerful God who can transform the human lives. He loves your dad and he loves you boys as well. And he longs for the same thing from you. My question, friends, is, is what is your plan when it comes to training your kids up in righteousness? What's your strategy when it comes to instructing them who God is and what God longs for their life? What is your strategy? Here's the deal. If you do not have one, right, your strategy is don't do that. Do this, right? Um, or, or maybe, or maybe, man, if you do that, God's going to get you, all right, which works for a, for a moment, for a moment, for a moment it works, um, right? It, it, to, to what is the plan that you have? How are you going to um, train your children up in the gospel of Christ, have you thought that through? Have you talked that through with your spouse? What, what are the plan, what's the idea that you have in your mind of how you're going to train them up in the gospel? And if they don't hear it from you, who are they going to hear it from? If they don't hear it from you, if they don't hear the beauty of the gospel from you, if they don't hear the bigness and the vastness and the mightiness of God and how he loves them, how he's lavished complete grace upon us, if they don't hear that from you, who are they going to hear from? What are they going to hear? What are they going to hear from their kids' friends at school? What are they going to hear from the kids around the neighborhood? 
What are they going to know about grace if they don't hear it from you? What are they going to know of the gospel if they don't hear it from you? And the reality is, the reality is, is if, if we do not do this well here, someone else will tell them over here. There, there's no doubt. What are they going to hear? The first piece that Paul talks about, the other piece is this, is discipline, right? I said earlier, discipline. I don't think he means um, uh, physical discipline or punishment in any way, shape, or form. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Um, I'm not saying that that's wrong or right or anything with that. In fact, I would say biblically, um, it's, it's all over the Bible. But what Paul is talking about is creating a system, a structure of discipline, um, helping our children to live Disciplined lives. Paul's saying, man, there's a value in helping our children live disciplined lives. This is all over the Bible as well. Um, this, uh, in Proverbs, Solomon puts it this way. Uh, Solomon says this in Proverbs 22, 6. It'll be up here on the screen. Train a child up in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Right? If we train a kid up, train him, coach him, teach him, Right? It's this idea of a coach, a coach, whether you, whether you play a sport, whether it's football or soccer or wrestling or, or whatever your thing might be, um, there, there is this kind of repetitive behavior that you train the kid to do again and again and again, and you give them simple, basic instructions. And they master those simple, basic things, and you give them a little bit more. And there's simple, basic things, and they master those things, you give them a little bit more. And then they master those things, you give them a little bit more. Right? You cannot, you cannot just kind of say, well, here's the ball, figure it out. No coach does that. It's a horrible way to coach, right? But if we're, if we're honest, if we're honest, the way that we parent more often than not, we punish our children, we, we, we give discipline to our kids um, to stop them from annoying us rather than to train them in something greater, okay? Like that, that's parenting. That's like, that's like everyday run-of-the-mill parenting. If we're honest, if you're honest with yourself, the bulk of your parenting is, is discipline in order to stop a kid from annoying you more than it is to train them in something greater for themselves, right? As you're going through your day, you're like, stop. Like, I'm counting to three. If this, isn't, if this isn't over, like you're going to timeout or whatever's happened is happening. Like get out of the house. Leave me alone. This is driving me crazy, whatever you're doing right now, right? That, that's parenting, right? For, if we're honest, right? Rather than having a thought-out strategy of how we are going to train up our children, we're just kind of moment by moment just trying to stop them from annoying us uh, and driving us crazy, right? Uh, that, that's, that's just the reality of it. And so we don't, we don't have a plan. Because we don't have a plan, because, because we don't have a plan, clear attributes of character that we're trying to instill in our kids, because we don't have a plan like this, we fail to train them up. And rather, we just push them away, Right? I said earlier, like down here, uh, this, this, kind of, this kind of bucket, the plan is keep the kid alive, all right? Just, just breathing, eating, growing, keep them alive, right? But here, I think, what is this, two years old? From two to four, from two to four for us, just for the nights, and listen, I'm not, a, I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a great dad or anything like that. From two to four, all that we want Winston to learn is just two things, just two things, all right? Two things. Number one, be kind, be kind to your friends and to be kind to others, okay? We're teaching him in kindness. We want, to, we want to instill in him again and again and again and again, be kind, be kind, and listen on the first try. To mom and dad, listen on the first try. You guys have been around, you've probably heard me say that to him. Listen, Winston, this is your first try. Here's what I want you to do. 
right? I'm teaching them. I'm coaching them. I'm, I'm reminding them again and again, this is your first try. Those are the only two areas of discipline that we've given him. Everything else is kind of fair game. We're not going to punish him uh, for things outside of those two things. We've just given him two simple, basic things um, for him to grasp. Now, now we're getting ready to give him a couple more. All right? We're going to give him just a couple more things. And, and we, we want him to understand from two to four. We want him to understand that God loves him. God loves him. Right? What more can a kid understand? If as long as but now he's beginning to surprise us in some of the things that he understands of the gospel and the things that he understands of Christ. And so we're beginning to give him a little bit more, right? But still, just, just three, four more things we're going to give him. And, and then six to eight, three, four more things. Eight to 12, three, four more things, right? Just simple, basically training them for two years, just training them in these three, four things. Just training them two years, two years, two years, three, four things, right? And then here's a little bit more. Right? We're just working on a few things over time so that hopefully, hopefully, when all of our weeks are gone, 936 weeks, when they're all gone, we can look back and we say, man, we've done, we've done everything we could. We've done the best that we could to train our kid up in discipline. Now, here's the reality. Here's the reality. 78% of parents, 78% of parents say that this idea of training my kid up in discipline is more complicated today than it was when I was a kid. 70% of parents, so, so the vast majority, almost 80% of parents say, man, it's far more complicated today than it was when I was a kid. And you know the reason why they say that? The majority, and the majority say the reason why it's so much more complicated is because of technology and social media. Technology and social media has increased the complication of parenting. This is something that you're not going to find in the Bible because it didn't exist then. In fact, it's not even something you can go back and ask your parents or your grandparents. Hey, hey, mom and dad, what did you do when I was a kid when it came to cell phones? They're like, we didn't have cell phones, right? The internet didn't exist yet. You're that old, okay? Listen, like you're that old, all right? We didn't have those things. In fact, it'll be our kids or maybe even our grandkids that'll finally be the ones who kind of have a somewhat of a grasp on this thing, right? It's developing so fast and changing so fast and it's so new that we, we are kind of in, in, the, in the sea of this trying to figure out which way north is and, and how do we get there. We're kind of in this together and I think that that's a big piece of this. This requires community in order to get there. It requires people helping each other out, and it requires a plan in order to help, help each other out. I just read this book that I highly recommend. Um, it's called The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. The TechWise Family. We actually have a bunch of copies of these uh, out in the hub. Um, I think they're 10 bucks, which is what we paid for them. We're not making a dime on this stuff, I promise. Um, we're just giving it to you for what we paid for it. Actually, it says $13.99 on the book. It's $10 out there, friends. It's a deal. Um, I just finished this book. This book for me was super convicting um, and super helpful, right? It, it kind of opened my eyes to see how critical this time frame is when it comes to technology in this idea of creating um, a system of discipline in the life of my boys. Um, what, is, what does technology look like? In it, Andy says this, um, talking about technology in uh, Talking about technology and social media, he says this, even at their best, it'll be up here on the screen, even at their best, social media, like all media, substitute distant relationships for close ones. A 15-year-old overcome by anxiety late at night might once have had no choice but to turn to her parents down the hall from her bedroom for help and counsel. 
But now, now she can send out a blizzard of text messages to friends who completely, understandably feel obligated to respond and feel gratified by the sense of being needed by a friend. But this text and emoji-mediated social support is thin. An echo chamber of teenagers with their limited perspective. It keeps a whole circle of friends awake late at night and robs that 15-year-old and her parents or even older siblings of an in-person conversation, one that could be painful, challenging, reassuring, and even transformative. Here's what, here's what he's saying, and this is why I chose this quote from this book, because this one, this one shook me a little bit. I understand, I understand the depths of the brokenness that come when you talk about uh, things like uh, pornography or cyberbullying and, and those type of things. But this, at surface level, sounds good. My kid, your kid, can have instant access to their friends. In a time of need, in a time of struggle, they can shoot out a text and have, have 50 friends instantly speaking into their lives. But then when you actually think about it and you break it down, you're like, shoot, that's not what I want. That's not what I want. Those kids don't have the experience. They don't have the perspective. I, I don't know what their, what their view is of the gospel and of Christ. I don't, I don't know if they're speaking truth in the life of my kid or not. I, I don't know. That's not what I want. I want my kid to be forced to walk down the hall to their dad and to their mom and for us to have a hard conversation. I want to see the tears. I want to see the emotion. I want to be there to respond to that. I want them to know that their dad and their mom love them no matter what far more than those kids on the other end of that text message. I want them to experience that. I want them to know that there's a God who loves them and is as, just as easily as accessible as it is to text their friends. They can reach out to the God of the universe who's sovereign over all things and who loves them no matter what they've done or no matter what trouble that they're in. And technology, friends, is not a bad thing. I just got a brand new smartphone just, just last week, okay? I've been eyeing that Apple Watch. That thing is sweet looking, man. That's awesome. All the things it can do, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, right? Technology is not the devil. And so don't walk out here thinking, man, Josh, that technology is the devil. I did not say that, all right? But the devil will use whatever he can to get at your kids and to separate you from them. And here's why. Because God has created a system and an order for children to have a flourishing life and a flourishing relationship with Christ. And that system and order involves you as a parent being engaged and having a sense of urgency in their lives and realizing I only got a short period of time in order to invest everything I am wisely and carefully into these kids. And if they can separate us, if, if the devil can separate us from those kids, whether it's by them being immersed in their screens or whether it's by you being immersed in your screen. The reality is that we only have a few hours a day with our kids. If, you, if you're a working parent, that's for sure, right? A working parent, if, if you're blessed and not have to go in too early, maybe you get a couple hours in the morning, maybe you get two hours in the morning. And then in the evening, you come home at 5, 5.30 and your kids go to bed at 8, 8.30, you get three hours in the evening. You get about five hours a day. There's a bunch of research from Barna in this book, and in it, uh, it says that the average parents say that their children spend five hours a day using an electronic device on a typical weekday. Five hours on average. You only got five hours with them. 
the more we are separated, the more, greater distance is created, the more pain that can begin to creep in. Some other stats from that Barna research. An astonishing 62% of teenagers say that they've received a nude image on their phone. And 40% say that they have sent one. So over half have received one and almost half have sent one of their own. The reality of the problem is not the phone. The problem is what have we done here? How have we invested over time? What, what have we done? How have we taught them? How have we trained them? How have we created for them systems of discipline and structure? How have we given them wisdom and courage to respond over here? How, how, have we, how have we withheld certain things from them, lock phones, for a period of time until we know that they are ready for that responsibility? Do we even view it as a responsibility? Do we even see it as, as a thing that, man, I want my kids to be disciplined and have wisdom and courage in life. I want them to understand that they have a dad and a mom that love them no matter what, and that they have a God who has pursued them and given their life, given his life for them before they're ready to be entrusted with the next level of things. Whether that's a phone or whatever it might be for you. Our kids need discipline, structure. It's all over the Word of God. So here's my question for you, friends. When was the last time that you had an intentional, planned out, well-executed moment? Now, I said moment. I'm not talking about a season. I'm not talking about years. I'm not talking about a day or a week. I'm talking about just a moment. An intentional, planned out, well-executed moment of character training and discipline with your child or grandchild. You said, man, I, I've got this thing planned out in order to breathe character into them, in order to give them a system of discipline, in order to walk into this so they might know right from wrong, good from bad. And so I'm going to train them and coach them in these just, just these few things, or maybe just this one thing. And I planned it out. I've thought it out. I'm going to train them in that. Have you thought through your personal policy on technology in your life, in the life of your family? For you personally, what's your, what's your policy on your phone, TV, games, whatever it might be? For me, after reading, this, after reading this book by Andy Crouch, one of the things that we've started to do at my house is on Saturday, my phone, my cell phone sits on the kitchen counter and it doesn't leave. It doesn't leave. If I go outside, it stays there. If we go, if we go and we go do something fun or even if we just go run errands, it stays there. I'm fully engaged with that full day that I have. I got one full day with my boys. And I'm fully engaged with my boys and my spouse on that day. It stays there. Right? There, there was a time in my lifetime, not that long ago, friends. I know I'm getting old, but ain't that old. When the phone rings and you're not home, they call you back. It still works, actually. You can still do that. You can call back. And now you can even leave, you can leave a voicemail. So it just stays there so that I can stay fully engaged. Have you thought through those things? Have you created systems in your life to help with that? When was the last time you had an intentional, planned out, well-executed moment of gospel training with your child or grandchild? Have you thought through a strategy in teaching your child who God is and all that he's done for them through the gospel of Christ? Have you begun to pray for them that they might know Christ? You have no control over this. But I believe that Christ honors a faithful 936 weeks. I believe he does. 
as we become, become a people who are faithful to Christ for 936 weeks and we pray for our children that they might know him, I believe that Christ honors that. There's no guarantees after week 936. No guarantees. But I believe that as we are faithful, think through, man, what are the systems of discipline that I'm training my kid in? The wisdom and courage that I'm giving to him or to her? The gospel-centered training as they learn the robust fullness and beauty of the gospel, all that God has done for them and how much God loves them and delights in them and how he longs to know them and draw near to them and for them to know him fully, completely, totally. He honors that time. He honors faithful investment. And so maybe that is the key word for parenting. It's just faithfulness. 936 weeks of just faithfulness. Might you be faithful to the gospel in the lives of your children and your grandchildren, children in your neighborhood? Let me pray for us. Jesus, this morning we come before you, and I know that in this room, when we, when we think about the urgency and the, and the amount of time that we have, for some of us in this room, there, there might be a weight of guilt a way to shame, and we realize, man, I only, I only got a couple hundred weeks left. Maybe for some of us in the room, our kids are already grown. We don't have any more time. It's gone. And we worry. And what if I didn't, what if I didn't invest well enough? What if I was too much about my career, my hobbies, my hopes, my dreams, and I didn't, I didn't have a greater picture of theirs? what that could be like for them. I pray that right now that you would free us from that guilt. Help me realize that you died for that guilt. You bled out for that shame. But in that conviction that we would live well in the present, that we'd pursue the right things in the present, that we'd think through our grandkids, how are we going to train them up in righteousness? For those of us who are just starting out, like, man, I don't even know how to keep this kid alive, let alone train them up and the good and right things of the Lord. Would you give us peace? Help us to live faithfully before you. Help us to be an example in their lives, a model that they might look to and see faithfulness drawn out over 936 weeks. And at the end of that time, if they can't say anything else, they can say, man, my dad and my mom, they were faithful to God and they loved me well. I pray that that would be true. Give us a hope. Give us a greater vision for the future for our children. Give us a strategy and a plan on how to get there and help us to walk faithfully before you in that time that we have left. Pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.